From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Conflict resolution, decision-making, and mood are all essential components of our human interactions. For individuals with psychiatric disorders, these functions are exhibited differently. Using brain stimulation to target functional domains in patients with depression or other psychiatric disorders, clinicians can likely improve cognitive ability. On this episode, we speak with Ishita Basu about her research on deep brain stimulation and the potential of neuromodulation. Dr. Basu is an assistant professor at the University of Cincinnati. So Dr. Basu, thank you for joining us and welcome to Think Research. I'm glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. You study deep brain stimulation and its effect on cognition. Could you tell us what brain stimulation is and what that means? Um, So brain stimulation is like an umbrella term used to describe any kind of external um, stimulation to the brain. It can be through electric current. It can be through uh, magnetically induced electric current. It can be non-invasive, such as something that's applied on the scalp, or it could also be invasive, which is uh, deep brain stimulation, as the name suggests, where deeper brain structures are targeted and we use electrical current to uh, induce charge in that area so that we can um, change the neural dynamics in that area. So that's what is generally meant by brain stimulation. Hmm. And you talked about, you said, you mentioned changing the neurodynamics in an area. So what are some of the uses for uh, brain stimulation? And what do you mean by neurodynamics? Brain functioning is achieved like the normal brain functioning is achieved when neurons in the brain fire, they communicate with each other, and that creates like a wave kind of activity across our brain. And in a healthy brain, uh, there's a certain pattern of this brain activity or wave, like, you know, brain activity that happens, which helps different areas of the brain, such as, let's say, the frontal area or the back portion or other deeper structures to communicate. And that's what I mean by dynamics. And each region has a particular signature, so as to say. And by external stimulation, we can modulate that. Uh, But obviously, we wouldn't want to do it if in a healthy brain. This we apply brain stimulation only when there is a pathologic condition in which the uh, brain waves might not be in a normal condition, which causes various symptoms. 
So that's the main purpose of using stimulation to modulate that pathological brain dynamics or activity to restore it to a normal state. And normally we, uh, so the oldest use of brain stimulation that I can think of is um, like old in a modern way is Parkinson's disease or any kind of movement disorder such as tremor disorders. And then uh, it has been approved for epilepsy now. And it's also being considered for neuropsychiatric disorders such as major depression, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. In fact, it is approved for obsessive compulsive disorder. That's the only psychiatric indication that it is approved for a non-invasive stimulation such as transcranial magnetic stimulation is approved for depression. Um, so these are some of the pathologies that I can think of where brain stimulation is used. And you originally studied electrical engineering. Right. And I wonder if you could talk about that how that prepared you for your career now and why you became interested or how you became interested in, in mm -hmm. studying the brain and movement disorders. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, although my home department was electrical engineering, I actually uh, started with more of like, a, uh, like in my terms, a neural engineering project uh, because so my doctoral thesis was, uh, designing an algorithm to detect uh, Parkinsonian and essential tremor from muscular signals such as surface EMG so that we can use that to design a closed loop deep brain stimulation. So what would happen is if you detect tremor from the muscular signals, you can signal the device to start um, electric to start stimulating. So that kind of closes the loop. Um, so that was my PhD project. So although, I mean, there is, I don't think there is any department that is neural engineering, the closest we can get to is either biomedical engineering or bioengineering. So a lot of neural engineers are based in either electrical engineering or biomedical engineering. Um, so yeah, I mean, when I joined my um, doctoral thesis advisor's lab, she had a collaboration with another professor who was interested in looking at this project. And she asked me if I would be interested in working on it. And it seemed pretty interesting to me, like studying the brain and how can we, I mean, it seems more uh, application oriented and more in the medical side of things, which was exciting and interesting for me. So yeah, I, there was no particular reason for choosing the project, but it was just presented to me and I thought it would be a good one. And that's how it started. And then once I was in that field, I remained there. And then I went on for my postdoc uh, at Johns Hopkins, where I studied uh, seizure propagation, and then I went to Mass General Hospital, where I was looking more into uh, deep brain stimulation applications in the psychiatric domain. So, yeah, that's how it started and evolved. And um, 
So you have a paper coming out uh, that's going to be published soon based on work you did at MGH that was part of a defense advanced research project administration or DARPA project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us more about that project? Sure. So the big picture of this project was to be able to build a closed-loop deep brain stimulation system for neuropsychiatric disorders. And this was funded by DARPA because a lot of veterans are affected by um, psychiatric disorders, particularly um, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety. Um, However, we uh, decided to take more of a functional domain approach rather than looking at the symptoms of the different disorders. Because in a lot of psychiatric disorders, there's a huge amount of overlap between uh, diagnosis. For example, um, somebody having major depression might also have a lot of anxiety. Uh, However, um, two patients having depression might not have any overlap in their symptoms or very less overlap. So it's not necessarily the diagnosis that is a good characterization of what's going um, wrong in their functioning. So there is this uh, research domain criterion that is uh, in the NIH where they Um, take a functional domain approach to psychiatric disorder. So that's what we were doing. We had defined five functional domains and how can we uh, build a stimulation system to modulate or improve subjects in those functional domains. And my specific role was in studying the functional domain of cognitive control. Um, which is basically how do you flexibly allocate your mental resources for goal-directed behavior? How do you make decisions? Uh, How can you resolve conflict? So basic executive functioning. Um, And um, in an experimental setting, we study these functional domains by using computer games or computer tasks, which a subject can perform which kind of puts them in a situation that is similar to what a real life situation might be, but it's way more controlled, right? Because in a real life scenario, you might have a situation where you have to make a decision, but that won't be repeated. That will be maybe just one time. But in an experimental world, if we just have one such situation, it's very difficult to study the brain's response to it because um, the signals are so noisy that if you just look at one instant of it, it's not very easy to uh, detect that signal. So in an experimental setting, we would have such situations multiple times so that we can kind of average across those multiple occurrences. And then in that way, we can better extract uh, the relevant brain signals. So in our case, we used a conflict resolution task where uh, a participant would be encountered with 
a conflicting situation and he or she has to inhibit uh, a natural response and respond to the conflict. And we measure how long it takes for them to do that. And that is an, a kind of an indication of how good their control or cognitive control is. So that is like, that is a surrogate um, measure of behavior or a measure of how good they are at, you know, inhibiting a response and making um, a decision or making um, a response. The population we were studying was subjects with epilepsy. Um, the reason being that these patients have uh, invasive recording uh, from their brains for detecting seizure because they are being evaluated for surgery. So um, the surgeon wants to detect the exact brain region that can be resected or that can be stimulated. So we have um, a recording from different regions of the brain, which is not otherwise possible. Um, so these subjects would perform a computer uh, task, which would mimic a cognitive control domain. And then we would record their brain signals while they are performing the task. And in some of the experiments, we would also perform some electrical stimulation and see if we can actually change their behavior or change their response times. And what we found in this work was that if we um, stimulated a certain region of the brain, which is known as the ventral capsule, ventral striatum, we could actually make them faster in the task in the sense that they would respond faster and still being correct. So that's important because you can become faster at a task, but do it in a less efficient way. Uh, so the stimulation actually made them faster without reducing accuracy. Um, so that was one of the findings that we could, uh, so we potentially could use such a brain stimulation to change their behavior or to make them better at cognitive control in, um, in at least in the experimental setting. We also found that uh, there are certain regions of the brain that are more active while performing such cognitive tasks, which is uh, mostly the uh, frontal region. It's called the prefrontal uh, cortex and as well as um, the temporal lobe uh, of the brain. So this also indicates that these would be the brain regions that are um, involved in these kinds of cognitive control. And so from what you said, it sounds like um, the, maybe I'm just, I'll try and summarize, but basically giving brain stimulation to people with epilepsy can help them control their response so if they're trying to perform a task um maybe maybe you could describe a little bit what that task looked like on the computer i mean epilepsy is a seizure disorder mm -hmm. um and so to be able to 
yeah, let's, there's, I have a few different questions. Yeah, but. so that, right. So it has, I mean, we assume that it will also translate to other populations, specifically mm. psychiatric population, and it would also improve cognitive control in them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that require that needs testing. We just did it in our epilepsy group because mm-hmm. we could access their uh, brain more invasively. Uh, and regarding the computer task, it's um, so specifically uh, it shows you three numbers, and two of them are the same. One is a unique number, and the unique the position of the unique number can either match. Uh, so for example, let's say we have 020 and uh, the subject has to respond to the unique number. In this case, it's easier because two corresponds to the position two. So okay. it's easy right. to It's in the two. second position, right? Exactly. But if, if, if I have something like 112, Mm-hmm. Then two is in position three. So there is a natural tendency of pressing three, but the subject actually has to press the key two. Mm-hmm. So that creates a conflict. So you have to inhibit your natural tendency to press the third key and press two. So that's what creates conflict. And what we have seen in general is that such situation makes you slower by around 300 milliseconds compared to the easier ones. Um, So what the stimulation did was actually um, kind of made uh, the subjects faster on both kinds of trials. So not just the harder ones, but also on the easier ones. So it kind of increased your overall responsivity to the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so what is, what's left to be seen is, does this actually translate into the psychiatric domain? And the other important question is, if you, you know, even if it does, um, even if it improves cognitive control, does it actually translate in the way of their symptomatic view, right? So Mm -hmm. um, does making someone functionally better, does it actually alleviate their symptoms of, let's say, mood or anxiety? So that's, that's an important link that's not established yet. You, you said that the, you chose the epilepsy subjects because you had access to Mm -hmm. the their brain waves, basically. Right, um, exactly. Was it, but there wasn't any connection to epilepsy to try and, try and alleviate symptoms? It has nothing to do with epilepsy. But what is interesting is that some, a lot of these epilepsy patients actually also, also have a lot of depression, anxiety. So we can kind of categorize this, these patients into having anxiety, depression, and a more of a normal uh, functioning people. So that's what I'm currently working on to see if, um, you know, if they respond differently based on their uh, mental states. Uh, that's something that we did not look at in this earlier project. We were pretty much treating everyone equally 
and not taking into consideration if they had any previous diagnosis of anxiety or depression. From your work and what you're hoping to study, what do you see as sort of next steps and maybe the future for um, treatment of some of these psychiatric conditions? So do you mean regarding brain stimulation? Yeah, right, right. Um, Yeah, I think this is a promising approach. And there are some other groups who are heavily involved, such as Helen Mayberg, who is in Mount Sinai. She Mm. has a big depression trial with uh, invasive brain stimulation. Um, Samir Seth in Baylor College of Medicine, he has a similar. So he actually has... um, trial where he brings in patients with depression to um, figure out more more of like in an epilepsy setting to figure out where mm-hmm. uh, the stimulation should be. So I think it's a growing field and there are pockets of places where this it's it's not across the country. It's not as advanced as the movement disorders field or mm-hmm. the epilepsy field. And of course, people have reservations about brain stimulation, but I would think something like maybe a transcranial stimulation, which is which is non-invasive, might actually be the first step. And in that way, uh, TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation is something that's approved for depression. Uh, and there are trials of transcranial direct current stimulation, which is something that I'm also interested in uh, because it's very non-invasive. It's easy to do. There's barely any risk associated with it. Um, So those kinds of stimulation might be the first ones that would uh, be the way. But I mean, I can foresee a future where we will have more of deep brain stimulation. If we can do anything with neuromodulation, that would be great. I think one of the upcoming ones is ketamine, which also has like more of neuromodulatory effect for depression, uh, which is actually an anesthetic. And I think in very low doses, it has been approved for depression. So that's another kind of bridge between, I think, drugs and neuromodulation. I don't think the drugs can be that target specific Mm. is what my thinking is. Um, So I think uh, external neuromodulation can be more targeted. Okay. Yeah. So I think the positive thing about DBS is it's targeted, it's reversible, there's no side effect. But the challenge is getting the right target, the right stimulation, and um, how do you even, you know, know if the or the response to stimulation is not always obvious. Uh, it might be a gradual process, especially in psychiatric disorders. It might take months to actually see the effects. How do you optimize the stimulation? So those are all problems that. Hmm. Uh, we study or we attempt to solve. <laughs> wow. Well, Dr. Basu, thank you very much for speaking with us. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you very much. It was a great pleasure.
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.